0: as a guide, I'm there to bring the individuals to their edges. And, uh, and it's like just being safe enough. Of course, safety is huge in what we do. But when I say bring, you know, people to their edges, it's like, where is your comfort edge? Where is the edge of your awareness? Where is the edge of your knowledge? And how can I, as a guide or a mentor, you know, slowly and in a safe way, expand those edges.
1: Hey friends, this is Rupert Radio, the show where we expand our awareness and increase our degrees of freedom. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. I'm your host, Blake Rupert, and this week I have the delightful pleasure of speaking with Stephanie McKay. This episode is all about nature connection. For myself, nature connectedness is one of the essential legs holding up the tripod of my well-being. Along with psychedelic exploration and mindfulness practices, developing my relationship to nature offers a sustainable way of exploring reality, finding connection with community, and learning how to be more effective at the things that I want to accomplish. In our conversation, Stephanie gets into the nitty-gritty of how nature connection can increase one's ability to teach lessons in ways that are accessible and memorable. She talks about risk and why it's so important to have tangible consequences if you're hoping to stretch your boundaries and obtain new knowledge or skills. I'm guessing if you're a regular listener of the show, those are the sort of things that you deeply care about. And honestly, power to you. I want to see you thrive. So, without further ado, let's dive in.
0: Okay, so let's together just bring ourselves into a quiet place in our bodies, in our space. Let's bring our attention to our breath and just allow an easy breath. And allow that breath to settle us into this moment. Let's bring our awareness down to our sits bones. And just let your whole being root into this place, into this moment. And from that rooted place, let's open up our awareness And let's bring our senses into this surrounding. Let's hold both the stillness in our bodies, but also the awareness of what's around us. And with this sense of awareness, and settling, let's turn towards our hearts. And let's look into our hearts and see what gratitude is sitting into our hearts this morning. And any gratitude that might want to be spoken. And let's give that gratitude form, and let's speak it out into this morning. What are you feeling grateful for this morning, Blake? Mm-hmm.
1: I am exceptionally grateful this morning for sustenance and the easy access I have to so many forms of nutrition. And I'm looking out at a sea of green, all the foliage that surrounds my home and just really appreciating how, how much life, um, is represented in the plants and in all the things that grow.
0: Thank you. Mm, This morning I'm feeling very grateful for birds and bird song and just the way that uh, when I'm out on the land in the mornings and the birds are in their dawn chorus or their early morning chorus, uh, just the way my heart lifts um, when I hear their voices. And I'm feeling very grateful to be... uh, here on Gabriola, um, in the traditional territory of the Sanemak people. and very grateful for all the people who have tended this land for thousands of years and I'm grateful to call this place my home. Hmm. Well, let's let our gratitude continue to bubble up um, while we're here in this time together and for now let's turn our sights to our intentions for our time together what are your intentions for today blake
1: Hmm. my intention for this conversation is to connect with you in such a way as to tease out some of the real insights and understandings that you've earned through much dedicated study and yeah i'm just really also hoping to get to know you a bit better than i already do which every time i've done that in the past has been an absolute delight so i want to really uh appreciate and be present for that experience because it's really yeah enjoyable Hmm.
0: thank you blake may it be so my intentions for our talk um, are to yeah, have a good collaboration with you, and to um, come into connection with you, so that we we both may um, feed the spark of of this work and of this um, way of of being in relationship with with land and people that we. Um, both walk as best we can um and uh, and to honor the teachings that have been passed to me um to, to do my best to to speak from my experience um, and uh hopefully to inspire some um some other souls out there to come into deeper connection with with the land and with themselves mm-hmm. Well, let's hold our uh, intentions close and, um, as I said, continue to feel our gratitude um, with the silent whispers of our heart. And um, now that we have spoken our gratitude and our intentions and come together in this way, our minds are one.
1: Mm, thanks for that, Steph.
0: Mm, thank
1: you. Well, ladies and germs, those listening, welcome to Rupert Radio. You just heard Stephanie and I bring our minds together and a little introduction. This is Stephanie McKay. She is the founder of Fiona Wilderness School and Stephanie is a wilderness mentor, a four school teacher an entrepreneur. She's also been, yeah, a managing director for many, many students as they go through the process of learning how to connect into the land and being in community and developing skills and awarenesses. I've had the good fortune of working under her as a employee at Soaring Eagle Nature School. And yeah, I'm just really excited to have her today to speak to how we can revamp our whole notions of what school is. Maybe I'll just say here, Steph, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the introduction?
0: Uh, no, I think that sounds good. Yeah, thank you for that.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Well, maybe to start off, uh, we should give the audience a little primer. What is nature connectedness? What are forest schools?
0: Well, f- first, I just want to um, sort of tease out the the difference between uh, a forest school um, that is following directly the lineage of a forest school that originated, I believe, in the UK. Um, and that has traveled to Canada, and, and there is specifically a like forest school Canada, and um, so there. When we say forest school, it can either mean specifically within that forest school lineage, or it can be more broadly, um, you know, a school that is out in the forest, is nature based, nature based, etc. Um, so the work that I do follows a, a specific lineage that is is not in that lineage, but we can also call it for school, but um, that I follow the lineage of, um, started by John Young and um, who created the Wilderness Awareness School and the H Shields model and coined coyote mentoring. Um, so the the schools that that I have worked with and that I have, now uh founded and i'm directing and teaching at the what we do is we we provide um weekly monthly or bi-weekly programs for um, kids and adults to um, come out into the natural world and to be fully immersed um, in the natural world for you know a, a full day sometimes if it's a camp for multiple days in a row um really with the idea of um reawakening the very real memory of deep deep relationship with the land and um with community the human community and the other than human community um We run our programs. Most kids come to us once a week. Some kids come two or three times a week, depending on on the school and what's offered. Um, And yeah, I think that about sums it up.
1: Right on. Yeah, I've I've had difficulty in the past uh, finding an appropriate term as it's for a lot of people who come into connection with this or hear about it for the first time uh there isn't an awareness of what say nature connectedness means or wilderness Mm -hmm. schools uh so thanks for that introduction in it Mm -hmm. you mentioned um connecting to other i forget the term you used but it was uh non-peoples
0: other than human world. other than
1: human yeah could you define that
0: sure um I think I, I said that there because I actually used the word people, but you know, in so many different cultures around the world, the the word people was actually um, and is actually applied to other than human beings. So um, so I I switched it to mean other than human. Um, so that can include plants, animals, um, and you know, other experiences and forces beyond, um, this, this physical world, um, this physical realm.
1: Yeah. I mean, that points to just the anthrop, like the human centeredness of so many of our, uh, us in the Western culture, our mm-hmm. emphasis on just like people being the be all end all. And it, it is yeah. interesting to even consider shifting one's perspective to, be like, oh, wait, I'm surrounded all the time by all these other sentient beings who have their own priorities, their own insights, their own strengths and weaknesses. What mm-hmm. a broader and perhaps revealing um, outlook that can be.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and what that serves to do is is to create, I mean, that facilitates connection when we understand that these other beings um are that there is the possibility of of relationship and mm. and that that can grow over time.
1: Yeah, especially in a time when I think over and over again I'm hearing this refrain from people that I speak with that connection and having meaningful relationships is such a such at a high cost right now like it's so hard to find and I think if one can Look at their surroundings, and instead of seeing everything as just a backdrop or like card, a cardboard cutout world without soul, if you can begin to realize that, oh, like the trees have, they make decisions, they like, they communicate, or the deer and the the birds, they they can be friends, they can be allies, they can be, have their own narratives. It's like That's wow, awesome. so much more potential for yeah, meaningful relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what, what I've seen over and over again, which is so amazing and astounding uh, and hopeful for me, is that when I have worked with people that have been very separated from the natural world, you know, for their whole lives, um, when they come, when they're given the opportunity to step into the natural world and to immerse themselves, that 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 natural understanding of relationship is is so present so quickly so it's really wonderful the that it's there we all have uh, a memory of that if we don't have a a current practice of of that right now it's it's very easy to step back into that because it's so deeply embedded in our um body memory our Mm -hmm. ancestral memory
1: yeah for sure that that maps with my experience and just seeing how people from all walks of life and experience how quickly they take to, uh, nature connection. And yeah, maybe they need a little bit of prompting or an invitation or an opportunity, Mm -hmm. but I think that I haven't met somebody yet who doesn't quickly get excited in a way that constantly surprises me at like how, um, familiar it it seems to be to everyone Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. before.
1: Before we get into the strengths of this approach, maybe it'd be useful to explain a little bit more about what uh, Coyote Mentoring is, even on a nuts and bolts level. Like at the school you run, um, mm-hmm. what would a typical day look like for a student, say, who's in a weekly program?
0: Sure. Well, we, you know, we've got everybody arriving in the morning. Um, and of course, things are slightly different um, right now because of uh, COVID restrictions. But I'll speak to you know generally how it looks outside of of that, and also inclusive of that, just so we get a broader sense. Um, you know, one thing you know, the mornings are really important. It's a it's a wonderful time to um, connect with the parents. Um, you know, we the kids arrive. We usually have. You know, some easy game happening for, for them to jump in and out of. Um, we'll often bring um, different objects or tools or, you know, treasures that we have found in the forest or um, down at the beach or on our wanders um, out in the natural world. Um, often things that, you know, whether it's bones or some really cool rocks or particular plants you know to share with kids that don't particularly want to be in the game Um, and all of these are open to the parents as well for the parents to come and you know really to create this this sense of community because so much of what we do is 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 about community it's not just about you know being on the land with the kids it's it's going out beyond that and really creating a culture of nature connection um so we have, you know, our, our gathering together in the morning, and then once we're ready or everybody's arrived, we head off into into the forest. And of course, we are here in the Pacific Northwest, so it is in the forest. It's this is not true for all locations, but um, so we head off, and you know, as a as a big group, we usually play a big game, and it's really about the the early part of the morning is really about inspiring. Getting the kids activated, um, really setting up the passions for for the rest of the day. Um, and once that sort of has run its course, we shift into storytelling, and we bring everybody together for a snack and story. Um, and the story is most often thematically linked to um, to the day and what we're wanting to to bring for the day. Um, the story, storytelling is a huge, huge, huge part of what we do. And, um, often the story creates, um, the opportunity for, for learning, um, for, uh, drawing, you know, pieces of inspiration from the story, um, out into the rest of the day. Um, so the story really sets up, um, Uh, how the rest of the day unfolds Um, it doesn't always happen that way but that's that's the intention with with the story most often Um, and then from there we we set off in often in smaller groups Um, we have a a ratio of about seven to one or six to one for the smaller kids Um, we head off um, into our smaller groups and We very often have uh, different sort of bases. So, you know, whatever has happened as the group has unfolded um, out on the land, we usually have different uh, base camps that we'll go to and we'll pick a particular base camp and and go and set up, you know, for an activity or um, really whatever the kids are are feeling passionate about at that time. you know, I say that we we come with a theme and we come with a particular plan for the day, but we are passion based learning, so um, if you know I tell a story about tracking, and for whatever reason, something happens in the forest, and you know say a, a cooper's hawk goes flying through the forest, and all the kids see it, and they get super passionate about birds or the cooper's hawk or you know, what's happening, you know, with the birds in the forest, then I will, you know, put aside my plan of, of doing some tracking activity and, you know, I'll follow the passion of what the forest is offering to us and what the kids are picking up. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and, then I go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that, that's, uh, in that I see two things that are really, um, distinct from, I think, traditional models of education, or um, we might introduce this topic of mentoring and how that's different than traditional Mm -hmm. education. Um, Mm -hmm. But this idea of passion-driven or curiosity-driven and really being attuned to whatever is arising in the moment, instead of trying to stick to some predetermined structure or timeline or something. And then also this idea of um, yeah, we can get into at some point, the, the idea of invisible structure and Mm -hmm. how, um, there are, there is this flexibility to move as things change. And it might also give the appearance that there isn't actually any structure at all. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that after maybe you go into through the rest of the day.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. I was just going to finish off with, you know, after, know we've done the bulk of of the day out in the forest Then we we gather back again with all of the groups and and we share um it's basically the group coming together to share their story of the day and so we'll go around and we'll do a closing circle and um, each child and mentor has the opportunity to share a moment from the day um, that stands out to them, um, whether it was a learning or something that was really exciting for them or, you know, a favorite part for them. Um, and that really, the idea of that is really to, you know, integrate um, the experience of the day to bring us back into community, back into um you know, the, that feeling of, of oneness with each other and um, and by sharing to, in the circle, we've created a, a basket to to catch all of the stories because uh, mm. that's a, a really important part about mentoring is that when we have an experience out on the land and we're so filled with excitement to, to share um, in order for that experience to really, go its full circle of integration and to completely integrate sharing with, with others and having that story um, caught by others is, is really important. So that closes off the rest of our day and then we walk out for pickup time.
1: Yeah. Right on. I I Mm -hmm. love this idea of emphasizing the importance of sharing uh, your passions or the things that you're discovering or working on. I know Mm -hmm. that in my own life, if I have somebody to share my thoughts with, I'm way more likely to continue to pluck away at the project or search for deep, deeper levels, as opposed to if I'm just in isolation, it can be, I don't know, it's just not motivating to be like, oh, yeah, I found this thing. But if I can share it with somebody and they they receive they that, they catch it, yeah, it's a mm-hmm. great feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I think we have a a bunch of topics that I mentioned. Uh, Take your pick and, yeah, let's work through them.
0: Um,
1: Maybe um, just explaining what your concept of mentoring is.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so my understanding of um, being a mentor um, is – To really um, witness and to um, become attuned to the individuals that I'm working with. Well, the individuals and with the group, because there is a group energy and group dynamic that is created. Um, And through that witnessing and attunement to... Open a space for the individual gifts of a child or a teenager or an adult to have their space and to find um, to find the light of day. Um, so, as a as a mentor, um, I, my job is really to get to know the one the ones that I'm working with, and that actually means also the land um, and and the individual, you know. As I said, kids or adults that I'm working with, um, and that I'm really there to um, see the spark of of life, to see the spark of passion, and then to to pick that up and to to weave a container where that that spark can can really grow, um, and to also create an environment where um, each. Passion has a place and to recognize that um, I'm not trying to create, you know, one um goal or one directive here, but that to really instill the understanding that each child, um, each adult, each teenager has a unique gift to bring to their community. Um to this world. And my job is to really, uh, help that happen. Mm. And the natural world is just an amazing place for that to happen. Um, where, you know, it's such a dynamic environment when we're out in the forest and when we're engaged in activity, there's so many different facets of an activity to be involved in. Um, and it really does create the possibility for the natural gifts to to find their place within the greater constellation of the group.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious if we juxtapose this kind of like, it's almost like shepherding I'm hearing from you or somebody who's tenderly watching a flock and engaging in a way that's... Um, nourishing and compassionate and also attentive Mm -hmm. if we juxtapose that to say like the western traditional school system what are the key differences
0: well i think um i i first of all just want to say that i think that you know for some for some families for some kids the 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 public school system or the traditional education model really works for them. So I don't ever want to set up an, an opposition between the two. That's, that's not my intent. And I, I I don't think that, you know, that's necessary. What I am offering is, you know, here's, here's a place where if, if that doesn't work or if you're looking for something else, like this is, this is another approach. And so, you know, I see the difference um, being, um, you know, some people say that in the sort of quote unquote traditional approach to education is that we're really like putting information in that it's information based um, and that it's, it's efficient and um, meant for a specific outcome down the line in terms of success or, you know, status quo. Um, I see what I'm doing is rather than putting information in is that I'm actually drawing a unique gift out. Mm. Um, Or allowing for that unique gift to, to, to come out that it's, it's creating an opening rather than, you know, putting something in. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I also think, you know, some other ways of looking at it are, um, you know, I'm, I'm there as, as a guide and one of the most beautiful things about this work is long-term mentoring. Um, And what I, as a guide, I'm, I'm there to, to bring the individuals to their edges and, uh, and it's like, just being safe enough. Of course, safety is huge in what we do, but when I say bring, you know, people to their edges, it's like, where is your comfort edge? Where is the edge of your awareness? Where is the edge of your knowledge? And how can I, as a guide or a mentor, you know, like slowly and in a safe way, expand those edges? Um, Whereas I think often in you know, traditional education, it's like, how can you stay within the edges? How can you, you know, learn this, fit this model Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: carry that forward?
1: Yeah. It sounds like a part of the distinction is one of uh, standardization and of moving towards the mean and uh, this almost industrial uh, school system that we have and, the listeners may be familiar with, uh, the origins of like schools and sitting at desks is actually largely due to the industrial revolution and trying to teach students how to fit on a factory schedule. um, Mm -hmm. because that, that kind of uniformity, uh, creates efficiencies as people can really act in lockstep and follow set procedures. Whereas Mm -hmm. Steph, what I hear you representing mentorship as is a invitation to step into open space, to explore, to discover, uh, say the dark, dark parts of the map that I love this idea of edges, edges of your awareness, of your capacities, of your knowledge. And in that process of inviting students to explore, the teachers or the mentors aren't doing the work for them. They're not imparting the answers Mm -hmm. to questions they are empowering the students to do their own growth, their own learning, their own discovery. And something in my process that I've realized is that that approach is incredible in that it affords each student, each mentee the opportunity to discover things that perhaps their mentor doesn't know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't Mm -hmm. privilege the mentors as person with the answers or the with the rubric to evaluate what is right or wrong good or bad it literally creates this like much more flat power dynamic that encourages everyone to like you said show up and discover what their gifts are and to really take ownership for their own um, development outcomes
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely i i love learning with with you know the folks that i work with and it's it's so amazing to be in that shared space of of passion and discovery. And, you know, no matter how many hours I have spent out on the land, it there's still like I will forever be learning. And you know, we discover things all the time that it's this, you know, it's a new discovery. And we all get to experience that and and then go to the field guides or however we want to interact with, you know, our discovery. Um but that, yeah, it's I'm we're all learning together, and you know, there is a place for you know, guiding and holding a container and and leadership. but it is much more of a um, yeah, a flat power dynamic, as you say
1: mm. yeah. it seems like there's a lot more trust in the mentorship relationship and mutual mm. mutual like respect to some degree. Mm -hmm. You used a word just there that maybe you could explain. uh, It's field guides. What are field guides?
0: Sure. So field guides are um, books that um, typically deal with a specific subject um, or yeah, specific topic um, of the natural world. So, it's like a a resource guide um, or so if I would take, for example, um, a plant field guide. So, you know, I've got a um, plants of coastal British Columbia and within that book, it's, I can, you know, if I discover a plant, I can go into this book and, you know, look up um, a lot of the, the field guides have um, sort of a, a, at the beginning of the book, there's like a, a key to figuring out, well, if the leaves are like this, then turn to that page. Or if, if the flower is like this, turn to such and such a page. And so it really helps, you know, the, the learning process um, and, and discovering um, new plants. I mean, there's plants, there's, there's everything, plants, trees, fish, insects, tracking there's tracking field guides for you know learning about um the different tracks that you may find out in the forest um so they're really resource and reference guides cool yeah
1: yeah definitely helpful for anyone who's looking to deepen their knowledge and get familiar with the other beings that exist around them
0: for sure yeah
1: a moment ago you were talking about the role of leadership and how that applies to mentors um, mm-hmm. How does leadership connect with invisible structure and maybe coyote mentoring at large?
0: Mm. Well, can you ask that again, please?
1: Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, in simpler terms, what is coyote mentoring? How does that connect with leadership?
0: Sure. So, you know, we've been talking about, um, that, you know, there's, there's less of, we could say, or a different, you know, power structure within, within mentoring and within these, you know, schools. Um, and, you know, with coyote mentoring, you know, I'm there, um, really in service to, um, the kids or, you know, the folks that I work with. Um, And, you know, there's, I'm there to offer different ways of, of learning. I'm there to, um, you know, facilitate discovery and connection. Um, But at the same time, you, you know, I actually had a dream once and I don't know, if this will will fit, but I, I had a dream when I was in the forest, and there was this great, big wizard like being who was there, and he he pointed his finger at me, and he said, "Sometimes you just have to lead." And this dream was very impactful for me, and you know, I taking that to my to the work that I do is that. There, there is a time when we're out in the forest to to really step into a, a leadership role, which I think I see as is, is slightly more um, active or or directive, and um, or it's like maybe holding the center um, a bit more rather than standing back and 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 holding the bigger picture and then swooping in and into a focus point with a particular child and then and then coming back or swooping in and and offering a direction for the group whereas you know and and I think it works the same uh, you know for for a mentor to be dynamic in the ways in which they can hold and um yeah hold the group is that sometimes we, we step into that, that active role of, of leadership. And, and then sometimes the, the leadership looks more like being attuned and being in the bigger picture.
1: Hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to distill uh, what that leadership, what form that might take. Like I'm, I think, the listeners are probably pretty familiar with the idea of someone standing at the front of a classroom and mm-hmm. having a lecture prepared, or perhaps handing out assignments. And I'm hoping to tease out that, um, like you've already alluded to, uh, this nature connectedness really employs not only curiosity driven learning, where if something appears on that day, like it might override any sort of expectations or plans that the teacher had for how the day's going to go, but also Mm -hmm. like that leadership, is it, is it often the case that the leaders or the mentors at your school, do they um, stand in front of the class and tell them what's going to happen and then watch as the students just go through the activity or uh, yeah, what does it look like?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think this relates to the sort of, um three different um teaching methods that we use um and i'm not sure if this is going to be answering your question but um you know we're certainly not standing up in front and offering a you know didactic lesson for the whole time um we're you know if i'm offering um uh an activity, say I come one day and I'm wanting to work on shelters with, with the kids. And, um, and so I, I come with a story that I want to tell about say a shelter that I built um, with, you know, a bunch of kids out in the, in the forest. We, there were 17 kids and we built a big enough shelter for 17 kids. You know, we all slept out there overnight. Um, And as we were sleeping, there was like, glowing mycelium on the ground and, you know, that illuminated our, our dark night. Um, So I come with this story. And so during, you know, gathering the kids together to, to settle down for the story, or, you know, that's a moment where I'm being more, more active and I am up in front or, you know, sometimes we sit in a circle for the story. Um, And then, you know, hopefully the idea of the story is that after that story is done, the kids jump up and say, can we build a shelter? And I say, yes, of course. What a great idea. And, you know, so I am invisibly leading them into an activity. And mm. so through, through the storytelling, they are, you know, they're thinking, wow, what a great idea we had to, to build this shelter. And, and yet this was my way of, of, of leading them into the activity that I had planned for the day. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know that you uh, many times helped me workshop how to do that kind of subtle navigating or trailblazing because mm-hmm. prior to working with you and in this model, I had worked in so many different um, with so many different organizations with kids as like a soccer coach or as an English teacher, yada, yada, yada. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that's, I think, very familiar to anyone who tries to teach is that often if you come at the problem head on and you're like, this is what's going to happen, this is what we're going to do. There's often a lot of either reluctance or outright resistance to participating. And -hmm. I think it's natural if you look at it, I mean, I've heard you speak to this before, where if people are being told what to do, then you're removing their, their volition, their ability to choose and to author their own participation. And yeah, yeah. you're l- likely to get just a lack of interest.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, can I share another example? Uh, yeah, of course. I um had this leather, leather, little leather pouch that I wanted to make with the kids. And it was a little leather pouch on the end of a, that they could wear around their neck. And Um, And this was a a group that sometimes was particularly hard to, you know, inspire to, to do a, a, do a project. And so I set up this game where we're way out in the forest and I hid or placed this little leather pouch somewhere in the forest and they had to find it. And, you know, it was a big chase and tag game and a lot of sneaking and, um, and so when they found it, I actually, not, I don't think I even actually showed it to them. I just told them I was hiding something out there and they would know when they saw it. When they found it and, and you know, it was the game went on for about an hour. It was an epic game and tons of fun. And the kids were very, very into it. And then the, the excitement and the passion around going through all of that to find this leather pouch. And when they saw it, you know, after all of this buildup, there was so much excitement around this pouch. And one of them said like, oh, I, I love, can I have one of these? Or can we make one of these? And I said, yeah, of course. And I, you know, I was like, I just happened to have all of my stuff here. And, you know, they were all laughing and, and amazed, but it was just such <laughs> an easy way for me. It's, it just makes my life, so much easier, yeah, where when it's they're they're carrying the passion to make it, it's not me trying to bring the passion to them by mm-hmm. you know showing them how to do it.
1: I see so many skills stacked on top of that and mm-hmm. yeah, just the the notion of the invisible structure, how you had this plan, I mean, I would anticipate that you had to show up with a bunch of materials. In order yeah. to be prepared for that to happen, yeah. and also the how you're not teaching a lesson per se, this didactic or like lecture style of all right, this is what's going to happen. You're really like baiting them in a like fun and um, invitational way to consider the possibility, mm-hmm. and it really makes me think of the overarching name that. Uh, this lineage that you and I are in of coyote mentoring, um, Mm -hmm. that's been established by the wilderness awareness school, uh, which is based in Duval, Washington, in which there are now numerous, uh, seedling schools around the world, um, how the coyote mentoring name comes from, uh, coyotes who will catch you, catch a person's view from the edge of, uh, say a clearing and then dart down a track. Mm -hmm. perhaps anticipating that they might be followed and they might even lead their whoever follows them to somewhere really interesting um Mm -hmm. there's definitely an element of trickster trickster Mm -hmm. nature in there and yeah it's it seems like a really um exciting and influential way of uh leading people to to discover their edges
0: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely And there's, there's, you know, there's this, the trickster approach there, there is, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is, is questioning. Um, And then there is the didactic approach and there, there is a place for didactic, but as a mentor and using the coyote mentoring approach, it's really being attuned to in the moment for the group or a particular individual. Where are they at in their learning cycle right now, and what is going to, um, and and where is their edge in this particular moment? And of those approaches, like didactic, or questioning, or trickster, what is is the you know the one that's going to expand their their awareness or expand their um, understanding or passion about this particular topic or thing that they're interested in.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. for questioning specifically i've heard you in the past refer to it as the art of questioning Mm -hmm. um could you introduce the audience to that amazing skill
0: sure so the art of questioning um i believe it was john young who referred to it as the art of questioning um and that's just been carried on through um all of those who are following this lineage um so the art of questioning is, um, it's really, there, there's different stages to the art of questioning as well. There's questions that, um, like the first level of questioning is is creating confidence. So there are questions that can can easily be answered. Um, then there's edge questions. There are questions that, that take the individual to their edge. And then there's questions that are used very sparingly, but they're beyond edge questions, the ones that really like, they're blow your mind questions. Um, and the idea with the art of questioning is um, navigating through those three layers um, and using questions to facilitate the learning experience and to bring knowledge into integrated knowledge so that it's not just Mm. you know that we're not just dishing out information that it's if you're going to you know learn how is that learning going to happen Mm. and what I have found and what I think John found and and so many people have found is that if we have to come to the answers ourselves that integrates the knowledge or the answer into our being rather than, which it's a different kind of, of memory. It's really, it's not memorization. It's, it's integration.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I I was just going to say that um, the art of questioning for me is one of the most impactful and valuable takeaways I've got from coyote mentoring and Mm. this nature connectedness as a means of, um, developing awareness or imparting wisdom. Uh, one thing is that as a hallmark, um, of this approach is that often people will ask questions to their mentors and the mentors will, uh, not provide direct answers. So if a student or a mentee is like, Hey, what kind of bird was that? Um, Steph, I think you've done a great job in the past of being like, hmm, well, like what color was it as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, oh, that's a Cooper's hawk. Uh, yeah. cause I think we've all experienced if you're given an answer like that, it goes in one ear and out the other. And yeah. at school, I actually uh, studied in a memory research lab and learned that there's a whole bunch of neuroscience about this. There's a name for this called it's actually called yeah. uh, the Google effect. And essentially what researchers discovered was if you have information and then you think that there's a reliable way of storing that information outside of your uh, mind, such as having an expert that you can go to and ask, then your brain will spend less resources to internalize that information. Because why, why would it? If there's a way that's really reliable that you can get quick, easy access to it makes more sense from like a biological level to just rely on that and use it as a shortcut.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so this notion of making people like, or not making, but inviting them to participate in earning the wisdom, earning the Mm -hmm. answers, definitely Mm -hmm. I think both from my own and from your perspective, as well as the research, is much more likely to leave an indelible or lasting uh, impression or trace for the people as they go through the discovery,
0: yeah, absolutely, and when you first come in contact with it, it can be incredibly annoying,
1: so like, annoying, oh you know, my because
0: God we, because we are conditioned to we want answers immediately
2: I've, oh man
0: it's, <laughs> yeah, it's very different, like I will never forget when you know I was first introduced to this, and my very dear friend um Christy Drinness, who was um teaching at the Wilderness Awareness School in the early days, um, you know, I would ask her questions. I was so excited and passionate about my learning journey at the time. And I would be asking all these questions. I would never, ever get an answer. But it, the way that she approached it with me was so beautiful. And really, like, I will, I'll never go back because it's just so amazing how, the knowledge really integrates, and um, and it creates relationship. It creates relationship with with the mentor and the mentee. It creates relationship with, you know, whatever it is that I'm wanting to learn about. Um, so it's it's really beautiful.
1: Yeah, I I do want to emphasize it can be super annoying, <laughs> and I think, like you said, we've been conditioned to expect these quick responses. Um, but it's gone to the point for myself where. Now I almost, I catch myself when I'm asking people these questions, if Mm -hmm. it's so tempting to just outsource the labor of learning. But Mm -hmm. if I, if I'm in the position now where I actually want to know and digest and sit with Mm -hmm. and like integrate this knowledge, I'll find myself being a bit more intentional with my questions and not just asking for the, uh, the answer, but instead asking like maybe for something that just adds a piece of the puzzle so that i can move past the place that i'm at so instead of being like what was that bird i mm-hmm. could ask oh hey have you seen that bird here before
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's just like another d- piece of data another piece of information that i can use to yeah engage with it and perhaps get closer to understanding it
0: mm-hmm. yeah and is really wonderful when the when i you know have been working with somebody for for a while and they'll ask me a question and you know i'll keep you know coming back with with more questions for them and then they'll ask me a question again and and i'll i'll say do you want me to tell you and the moment when they say no i don't want you to tell me that's is really wonderful because it's actually it's shifted and and you know, as the mentee, you start to see like, oh, okay, I see my, you know, initial want for the answer, but I have experienced this other way. And I don't actually want the answer. (laughs) And I want to to figure it out. Yeah.
1: Oh, man, I'm struck by the similarities here of the approach that you're describing and uh, how the art of questioning can be utilized and how there's so much overlap there with I think really skillful therapists or psychedelic guides. Yeah. On a previous episode of the show, I was speaking with Shine Edgar, and he has said one of the most beautiful quotes that I've got so far on the show, which was that the role of guides or facilitators or therapists isn't to provide the answers, especially Mm -hmm. when you're trying to help someone who's suffering. Because if you step in there and just provide the answer, you are assuming Mm -hmm. that that problem or that it is a problem in the first place and that it needs to be solved instead Mm -hmm. of welcoming the possibility that there is something really beautiful and important for the person to go through as they engage with that opportunity, that obstacle, that question. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And yeah, I think so much of mentoring and of growth and personal discovery is showing up and being present with the situation you find yourself in and then probing around and seeing the different ways in which you can engage and affect outcomes and maybe even get burned a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I love that in the nature connectedness model, um, students are encouraged to take risks. Yeah. Maybe you could speak a little bit to that and how, um, yeah, there are consequences and in, in, or like for the students that you teach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, we some people. Uh, I think this is maybe more of a for school term um, that we engage in what we call risky play, um, and it's the idea of again, you know, taking kids to their edge, um, and but not. You know, so that so that their capacity grows, and you know, as I said before, safety is a absolute, absolute paramount in in what we do, and you know, as a mentor, we're constantly um, assessing risk, but we recognize the the importance of risk. That their risk is when we're when we're feeling that that growth edge, when we are feeling some risk, that there is a great aliveness in that place. And our physical capacity stretches, our mental capacity stretches, our emotional capacity stretches. Um, but our job as mentors is to make sure that we don't stretch too much. And mm. so there's a point where at, at the edge or at that, you know, place of risk where we can tip over um, into trauma, which is absolutely not what we want to do. So it's constantly, you know, assessing where is, is the edge of risk that we can take? And at that place of, of risk, can we teach them to, to walk at that edge rather than tip over or shy away from it? Because that's the growth edge when we're at that place of risk.
1: Mm, what a terrific, yeah, thought or statement. I love this idea that risk is has aliveness and that, yeah, mm-hmm. there's fruitful possibility on the edge there. I'm struck by, there's a David Bowie quote where he talks about um, the place an artist wants to be is uh, having waded into the ocean such that their feet just come off the bottom and they're forced to learn if they can swim. Mm-hmm. And if you're before that edge, that it's really easy to become complacent or stationary. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're pushing just a little bit further each time, you can really mm-hmm. discover and grow.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah.
1: In your so, oh, yeah, go for it.
0: Yeah, so the idea is that that yeah, that risk does provide the opportunity for for growth. Mm-hmm. You, should, you know. And in that growth, there's that there's also the opportunity for connection and aliveness. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. How many um, people around the world want to be seen struggling and want to be seen tackling meaningful problems by community, and to mm-hmm. be held as they fail, and to realize mm-hmm. that failing does not mean that they are worthless or undeserving of love. And then at all at the same time to be held up and celebrated and encouraged when they succeed. Mm-hmm. And I think a necessary ingredient of that is risk. Absolutely. It's one in today's climate that seems to be really, um, minimized. It seems yeah. like, oh man, like playgrounds where school boards say like, kids can't run. Yeah. Like whoof. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, um, well, there was a lot in there that, we're also creating resiliency. And I think that we create resiliency through failure and getting back up again and and keeping going. And um, also, you know, my hope is to create a a culture or an environment where failure is 100% accepted as a part of the growth process or a part of the learning process. And that, you know, when we when we do have that experience of failure, when we're held within, um, you know, an accepting and loving community in that failure, we are much more able to get back up again and to keep going and to keep trying and to keep taking risks because we feel that we are held. We we know that we're held by that that container of that community and and then we 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 develop resiliency. Mm-hmm. I actually also think that um, there's a a deep longing for risk in our youth, and you know we see it in all kinds of um, different extreme behavior. We could say it's extreme. I don't know if that's really the right word, but. Um, in in a lot of risk-taking, whether it's, you know, extreme sports or whether it's, you know, um, unsupervised uh, drugs and alcohol or whatever it is, um, there's, I do believe that there's a longing for risk. There's a longing for that edge. We, in this culture, we've lost... The container to guide youth through that um, relationship with risk, and so if we can um, you know through the work we're doing create a container for for the expression and the engagement with that risk um, that does feed a deeper longing um. I believe that we're heading in in a good direction towards um, healthy um, young adults, a healthy, you know, development through through childhood to adulthood. And if not, you know, when we don't have that structure and they're not, you know, guided or mentored or supervised through it, it comes out in these... Uh, in I think some sideways or unhealthy expressions you know for example this is a small example but you know I have kids in my programs who are seven years old who are who are using knives and are carving and you know this is something it it's a big deal for kids to start you know carving with knives and you know there's a there's a fascination with it. And um, and yet if I can offer it and do it in a safe and mentored way, if there's no reason why a seven year old can't be carving. And, you know, so that's just one example of here's how we can, you know, do something that's risky, you know, approach an edge. But do it within in, in a container that is safe and also, you know, actually addresses that deeper longing.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it seems like things like learning how to start fires or how to use a knife are one of these things that excite almost anybody. Yeah, and they might cause some fear. They might cause some. Reluctance, but at the same time, I think as far as I've seen, there is a universal, uh, like excitement Mm -hmm. and like, wow, like a deep respect of like this is an important technology Mm -hmm. and it definitely seems like there is some component of risk being involved in it, it being alive, like, like you said, livening Mm -hmm. and just making people come online and be like, Oh wow. Like you're going to trust me to participate in this, Mm -hmm. that, that feels profound. That feels sacred. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah I want to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: This you, you spoke to it of uh, this idea that if not given a way of expressing or engaging with risk in ways that are held by society or by mentors or community, that there's this possibility of th- that desire going sideways or mm-hmm. perhaps turning maladaptive. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to speak to uh, the conversation of rites of passage Mm. and maybe you can introduce the audience, um, those who aren't familiar of what the concept of a rite of passage is.
0: Well, sure. Uh, There's, I think um, these days there's been a bit of a blur between what's a rite of passage and what's an initiation and so a rite of passage really is a ceremony to mark a transition in life and um it's you know we have rites of passage today in in our own way you know graduation from high school is a rite of passage um you know, and you have a ceremony around your graduation, graduation from university, you know, so there's these major life transitions, having a child or getting married. These are rites of passages. Um, and, and, and there is still ceremony uh, around those things. Um, and then there's initiation. Which I I think is actually the one that is creating the deepest longing and and the greatest absence.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, what is uh, initiation?
0: So, um, an initiation, and in my belief, initiation is is still happening right now. Um, initiation is certainly still happening in a a lot of cultures around the world. There's still some cultures where, you know, the cultural context is um, alive and well um, for initiation. Um, But within the cultures where there is no longer active initiation within communities, um, I, I do believe that initiation is still happening. And so basically, uh, well, I don't think you could use basic for initiation, but my understanding of of initiation is um, that I think the one that I, I, again, I also think that there's more than one initiation through life, but that time from adolescence um, into early adulthood where there's a period of separation from um, community and from family um, that is guided by mentors and elders, where the individual is um, given teachings um, that are only given within the ceremonial context of an initiation. Um, these are spiritual teachings, um, land-based teachings, um, village teachings that, you know, relate within the spiritual context and the idea or not the idea, but the, the knowing of initiation is that it is during this time that the heart of the initiate, uh, falls madly in love with um, the holy in nature, with the natural world, with the divine, which whatever, you know, context you're in or whatever the word is that fits for you, it's this you know, bonding with forces outside of your human village, without, outside of your human life, such that when you come back into your day-to-day life, your your first love, your first marriage is to that something greater that you then serve for the rest of your life. Usually during the initiatory process, um, there's, you know, when when these, you know, relationships are building, there's very often it's risky. There's, um, you know, the initiates are either um, by their mentors or under their own will are, you know, taken to edge experiences over and over and over again. And there's, there's a deep risk and the understanding of, of reality or of the worldview of the adolescent is drastically shifted um, into a different understanding as an adult. Hmm. Yeah.
1: When when I was a youth, I was in Scouts Canada, mm-hmm. and all the way from the youngest age, which is affectionately called beavers, um, up into the the groups that were more like young adults, like going up to like nineteen years of age there was this whisper of this initiation that the older groups did Mm -hmm. and it was very mysterious and it was very cloaked in intrigue and also like a sense of its danger, Mm -hmm. but also the potential it represented of transforming the people who went through it. Mm -hmm. And the tradition at the time, the initiation that they had was for the older members to go out into nature carrying only that which they had in their pockets Mm -hmm. and As I got older, I learned more about this and was able to piece parts of it together And because parts of it you weren't told until you did it. But I managed to glean that um, over the course of a year or whatever in preparing for it or maybe even your whole childhood, you developed the skills such that on the day that you went out, it wasn't a matter of what I thought at the beginning which is how much can you stuff into your pockets but it transformed into how little can you take with you Mm -hmm. and still go out and not only survive, but thrive in connectedness to the land Mm -hmm. and maybe in, in the face of some pretty extreme weather. Mm -hmm. I mean, these transformations were, or initiations were known to take place during storms, which Mm -hmm. if you've spent any time in in or around Vancouver in the middle of a stormy Mm -hmm. period, then you know that the rain is no joke. And yeah, I never got to go through that process myself, but uh, the, even preparing for it and like leading up to it, um, there was definitely this like very clear sense of its importance and its impact on those who, who did participate.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it sounds like a, you know, very important and impactful experience. And I think that there is this element of of physical challenge. Um, also, you know, challenging your knowledge, your skill and your capacity. Those are all, you know, very often elements of an initiation. And, you know, that's also where the risk comes in. It is it's a big risk to go out into you know, the North Shore Mountains with only what you have in your pocket you know, there's it, there's definitely risk there. And then there's the other layers of, you know, do we have the elders and the mentors that pass on the spiritual teachings? Um, do we have the understanding that when you complete this initiation, or when you're going through it, that this is this is a a marriage this is a this is a marriage to the land and i think that that's an yeah. element that um is key and is is the one that has been lost or overlooked the most
1: mhm yeah it seems like there is definitely uh, a lack of connection amongst community members to those who are um, exhibiting and modeling uh, like earth-based teachings mm-hmm. and being able to find ways of pairing them with those who wish to learn. And I think one of the beautiful things about this community is that it's not about money in any way and that really it's just, uh, can you can we build, can we add more layers to the basket? Can we weave more people into the fabric of a healthy? And um, yeah supportive network yeah yeah for those who are listening who might be interested in starting their own path towards uh deeper nature connectedness do you have any activities uh that they might be able to to weave into their structure
0: absolutely so when i um first started uh, this particular path of of nature connection um i was living on Gabriel Island and um, was going through a major life transition. And just outside my house, there was this small, undeveloped area um, of land. and it was connected to you know other people's land. but you know in this little area there was um, yeah, it was just un- this undeveloped pocket. Uh, it had been logged maybe about, you know, 20 years prior. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, second growth or new growth coming in. And it was the home of my sit spot practice. And so this this sit spot for me um, is a fundamental and amazing um, journey and practice to step into really a a routine to get into um, that opens the door for incredible nature connection. Um, So I started going out into this little, you know, undeveloped area and I went every day um, for two years and I'm sure I missed a day here and there, but it's a daily practice. Um, and I went out for varying amounts of time, um, anywhere from twenty minutes to four hours. Um, and it, the idea is to um, find a spot, a comfortable spot where you feel safe and held, and um, and to sit. And it can, as I said, it can be for only 20 minutes. If, you know, if you're just starting out and 20 minutes is even hard, you know, find whatever amount of time is accessible for you to start. So if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. But the reason why it's 20 minutes is because when you walk out to your sit spot, you're creating a disturbance in the natural world. Uh, you you create a a ripple, an energetic ripple. Um, And when you sit down and you come into stillness, it usually takes about 20 minutes for all of the natural world to come back to what's called their baseline, where it's just this is a, a spot where all of the natural beings are now going about their daily routines or daily things as they normally would without being affected by your presence. Um, and that's really the point where um, the deep connection starts to happen with, with the natural world. But to get to that point, it's a very, very simple, easy practice of finding one spot. And it doesn't have to be in this vast, amazing wilderness. It, it really, you know, if you have a balcony, you can just sit on your balcony It's amazing what you can see from your balcony if you're living in the city. Um, Could be your back porch, could be a park close by, but really spending that time on a daily basis to tune in, to bring yourself into a place of awareness of what is happening around you, who is there, what's happening with the weather. You know, what are the sights? What are the sounds? Just really t- tuning into the sensory world around you for that 20 minutes or so a day. Hmm. And from that, it's it's absolutely incredible what happens.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Do you mind if I paraphrase back um, sure. just what I'm hearing to make sure that uh, we're clear on how to go about establishing this uh, practical skill of a sit spot. Yeah. Okay, so the idea is to try and travel somewhere super close and accessible to home, even just stepping outside and sitting down. And then once you're there, spend a minimum of 20 minutes if possible. Longer is totally permissible, but um, there's a sweet spot because for the first 20 minutes, um, you appearing or moving through the space is likely to disturb any, uh, animals or creatures that may be in the area. They might start to hide. And after that 20 minutes, you'll start to really see them at their baseline or at their natural state. Mm-hmm. And then it's important to have this be a regular practice such that you can observe over time, the pat, the patterns as they shift, maybe seasonally, well i'm sure a whole bunch of patterns will emerge mm-hmm. but yeah to get that continuity of observation from a similar place with a similar population and just to see like yeah what is going around uh going on in the broader space that i inhabit
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: is there anything that i miss there
0: no that's you got it and i just wanted to add that um the the regularity the routine of it is also um because the the animals or the beings that also call that place home or it's their area as well, they get to know you. And so the baseline actually takes less and less time to establish the longer you're at that spot. Um, hmm. So, you know, just a quick story. When I had been going to my sit spot for, I don't know, maybe about a year Um, there was, you know, there were a lot of deer in the area and it got to the point where I would no longer spook the deer and even got to the point where, um, a deer actually gave birth to her fawn right next to where I usually sat. It wasn't when I was, yeah, but when I returned the next day, there was this fawn curled up by the stump right next to where I sat. And she knew for sure that I was there every day and she actually gave birth right at my sit spot. So they, the relationships are incredibly profound and they get to know you just as much as you get to know them. Hmm. Yeah.
1: And tying this back into something we talked about earlier about connection. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't you say the birth of a deer or like the aftermath math, I guess, and feeling what sounds like is trust and feeling seen and like Mm. that, that deer like had a connection to you. I'm sure it was valuable.
0: Oh yeah. It's it. There's such a profound love that happens. It's it breaks open your heart. It's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah,
1: I'm struck by my own experience of working in at Soaring Eagle and how through that process I was invited to be out almost every day in the backyards of the place I grew up in Lynn Valley, uh, British Columbia. And in that process, it went from being like the landscape because I was in the same places every day. It went from being this place that more or less was static. I mean, I had seen it change from fall to summer and spring and all that, Mm -hmm. but I got to see it change day to day and realize that there was these thin slices of time in which different things occurred that I had either never witnessed before because I hadn't been out on the right days or I I just had thought had been unpredictable random events. But Mm -hmm. I realized that this process of showing up that there were these like really tightly interwoven relationships between different organisms and beings Mm -hmm. that produced pretty incredible results. Mm -hmm. And one quick example is there was a solid week where the whole forest and at least the places that we visited regularly were filled with silkworms Mm. or um, not silkworms, but uh, what are they called? Um, They look like silkworms and they were falling from the canopy of the trees on these thin uh, lines of barely visible uh, thread, Mm. inchworms. And then the the worms were just like dangling at like eye eye or head height, especially for the kids. And they talk about passion and curiosity. They could not do anything else other than run between these dangling worms and like dance (laughs) as the worms bumps up against their head. Amazing. And it was crazy to correlate that against the weather and be like, oh, like that's where we are in the seasons. And it, the temperatures have just shifted to like facilitate this and, Mm -hmm. oh, but how did, how did all these worms? coordinate to do it at the same time. And why are they all dangling like this? Is it to avoid predators or is it to mate? And it started this whole line of inquiry and curiosity. And yeah, I was just so deeply touched by the fact that prior to that, I had really seen the landscape as kind of like a playground, mm-hmm. this un- unmoving static, like fixed thing. Mm-hmm. And through showing up and participating and observing and just witnessing, I realized, wow, there's it's so dynamic and there's so much life here. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that I do not know. And it was humbling and it was inspiring. And yeah, it's just, it's crazy to me how that literally just was a result of coming to the same spot day after day and watching. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that there's, it brings to mind for me the difference between like scenery and being actually in the natural world, and so you know, we so often go to a place, or you know, we ride our bike through here or wherever, and we're just—it's just, just where there's a separateness where we see it as we can see beauty, but there's—it's—it's it's scenery to us, and it does seem static. Or some people describe it as like the green wall, where it says we just look mm. we just all see all a bunch of green and brown. And, you know, some gray, but when you enter into and invite this relationship and you sit in one spot every day, you really, you start it, like the whole thing just starts to open up and expand. And you realize that you are in this natural world. You are a part of it. And that like the, you know, the perspective just expands out and you start to like connect with individual elements of that and develop relationships with individual elements. And then you can see when that shifts and then the next element comes to the forefront. And so you do, you, you enter into the dynamic web of the natural world Mm. rather than being separate and seeing it as scenery.
1: Yeah. And what a beautiful, um, opportunity to tap into that. The motto for the show is developing your awareness and increasing your degrees of freedom. Yeah. And yeah, I'm super grateful for whether it's meditation or nature connectedness, embodiment, um, connecting in relationships, how so many of these super influential technologies are accessible in your day-to-day life with minimal cost. Mm -hmm. There's no subscription membership (laughs) you don't have to buy fancy equipment and in my own experience it's just like there's few things that have more leverage in uh expanding your life and your capacity to love and experience the highs and lows of life Mm -hmm. and yeah i'm just super grateful for their for their being
2: Mm. so am i
1: we're coming to the end of our allotted time and i want to be respectful of your of your schedule um but i did have one or two other questions that i'd love to hear your thoughts on i'm a topic that i had heard you bring a lot of insight and grace to previously was that of liminal spaces and i have to admit that prior to you speaking about it it wasn't something that i really had ever thought about at least not with definitions and words Mm. so i'd love to hear once again um, what your thoughts are, or just hear you share your thoughts on what is a liminal space and why are they important?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, a, a liminal space is really a space in between two very defined places. Um, and I mean, it can be in anything, it can be, you know, in life, we we'll say when you're coming out of university and but you don't yet have your next you know your your career established or your you know your solid job. It's you're in a liminal space between you know stages in in your life. Um, it can be uh, in the forest um, let's say where the where the forest um, edge comes up to you know the edge of, of a lake, so the in between the lake and the forest edge is that liminal space. Um, some people say that, or I often refer to the birds as being in in liminal space. Um, we uh, we're able to hear the birds so often, but we we're less able to see them a lot of the time, and so they're kind of like floating in between you know the the spaces for us of they're there we know they're there but we can't actually see them um so it's it's these these in between places and why are they important they're incredibly important Um, often in the natural world liminal spaces Um, another one would be like intertidal zones they're incredibly potent places. There's, there were a lot of life, um, lives. So, you know, in the intertidal zones, they're, it's incredibly packed full of life. Uh, same with, you know, the edge of a forest, say a forest coming into a field that, that space in between is, is full of very diverse plant life, lots of bird life, you know, it's, there's a lot of, um, energy in in these places and that's why they're important because when we are when we're in those places say in our own life we they're they're often destabilizing we don't we don't really know you know where what's going to happen what has happened we're we're floating in this space but that's when um say, the status quo of our life has, you know, shifted or fallen away. And we're left in this this raw creative place where there's the capacity for great change to happen um, at that point.
1: Hmm. Yeah, what I'm hearing from that is that during periods of uncertainty or transition, that there's the potentiality to transmute or shift mm-hmm. what is occurring and to direct it in to new possibilities or towards that which might serve or encourage growth.
0: Mm-hmm. And and it's often incredibly uncomfortable. We, you know, we want to get out of the, those unknown places as fast mm. as we can. But if we can sit in the tension between the two places, if we can sit in that tension, it's really allowing for the transformation to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I think often of something you've told me about this previously, which is the holding lightly of two ideas that seem to exist, even though they one idea should or like appears to uh preclude or end the possibility of the other idea Mm -hmm. so these ideas that seemingly can't coexist and yet holding the possibility of each in either hand very lightly and, and just allowing yourself to be like to notice that tension of that either or that desire of having certainty of having clear binary outcomes and yet to step into the liminal to invite and embrace the possibility that it may be possible that it, instead of an either or, it is a both and.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would even take it a step further of that. It's, it's knowing that these two things that seem mutually exclusive or entirely contradictory, knowing that they are both equal and valid. Mm that one does not counsel the other out, even though in a, you know, verb to be mind where it has to be either or, you know, that's what we would want to do, but holding them as equal and valuable and that they're mm-hmm. both true. So can you hold two truths that seem to with the rational mind cancel each other out in holding those two you're 100% creating the possibility for for life and for um, a malleable brain
1: yeah in my own experience it's been so tempting and so natural so reflective to skip between these different opinions of myself as either the hero of the whole world or the villain mm-hmm. and if I find myself doing a generous act to be like, you know what, I am a good person. (laughs) And then the next week, if somebody is like, hey, like, by the way, um, there's this thing that you've been doing that's actually been hurting me. And if I see that and I'm like, oh damn, why did I do that? I'm such a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's funny how quickly my opinion can shift and maybe that's reflective of my uh, self-respect or something. But at the end of the day, what i find is i really try and practice what this this idea and recognize like maybe it's possible that i am both somebody who does generous acts as well as somebody who does less generous acts Mm -hmm. and this temptation to fit neatly into prescribed boxes or fixed ideas of (laughs) as if i somehow know absolutely like the truth of the moment like i am x Mm -hmm if I can avoid that and simply just arrive and be like, huh, like, what is, what are all the things that are true in this place Mm -hmm. in this time? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think holding that within ourselves and also within the greater context of, of our lives and our, our, the world around us is that, you know, it's not, there's not a black and white world out there that,
2: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: we, we are incredibly dynamic beings living in an incredi- living in an incredibly dynamic environment and and there are multiple truths spinning around within these uh systems and environments including us mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah well that is something that i think we could speak to uh, for a lot longer Mm -hmm. and I still have many things that I'd love to talk to you about but I think we're gonna have to save them for another conversation and have you back on the podcast at some time Mm,
2: thank you Blake
1: yeah thank you so much um for the work you do to help connect people to these land-based teachings and to revitalize notions of village and of community and to really be somebody who demonstrates and passively or actively through either through just by role modeling or leadership, um, just imparting ways that people can come in more into alignment with themselves and the layers of the world that they, I think by definition, find themselves moving through. I, yeah, I'm humbled by not only your persistence and your, your um, desire to commit your life to doing that and to running the school like you do but also just by the incredible skill that I've witnessed in how you do that stuff, Mm. you really, um, they are a tremendous leader in the space and I really admire you.
0: Mm. Thank you so much, Blake. That touches my heart. Thank you. And thank you so much for, you know, opening the possibility for, um, these voices to be heard and for holding the space for, um, yeah, for all of us to to come and and give a voice to the different paths mm-hmm. in life that are that are out there. So thank you for shedding a light on on the different paths.
1: Yeah, I do I do want to take that opportunity to say that um, I think in a in the age we're in, and with the technologies that are around us, there is the possibility like never before to distribute information, and one of the shortcomings or the limitations for this nature connectedness is like we talked about there's, it's hard to find um, communities of people willing to teach and willing to learn sometimes. Mm. And one of the intentions for this podcast is really to use the leverage of the internet to distribute at scale um, conversations like this so that those who are interested can have free access to um, these conversations and maybe it will spark a fire and get them curious and or maybe it will steer them towards resources or uh voices that they can connect with and um hopefully develop their awareness and their degrees of freedom Mm. thank you just before we go um is there anything that you want to ask of the audience or and and also could you point them towards how they might find you
0: sure absolutely so uh they can find me by, by visiting our website. So um, we are Fiona Wilderness School. And Blake, do you have, um, like, do you list links and whatnot with the podcasts?
1: Yeah, there'll be show notes underneath this post.
0: Okay, great. So, you know, we, I can be reached through the website, um, fiona.ca. And we are on Vancouver Island and on Gabriola Island in BC. Um, I can be reached for um, any questions, inquiries, uh, long-distance mentoring um, just by, by email, stephanie at
1: Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, I look forward to the next time we get to connect.
0: Right. Thanks so much, Blake, and thanks to everybody who's listening.